0: of my heart Don't be all else save that Would you join me for a word of prayer? Blessed Lord God, we give you thanks and praise in all things, but especially on this day for the vouchsafe of the hope that you have given to us in the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us as we receive now Your word. Bring us to a right understanding of it and may the truth that we grasp so change us that we may be transfigured more and more into your image. This we ask in the precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just going through old notes, I I came across some old sermons from years ago. 2011, I I preached a sermon, uh, apparently, that was uh, my opening thing. I talked about my daughter Uh, at five years old. Her enthusiasm, her her love for the characters in the books and the television shows that she was exposed to. Um, I'll never forget her standing like this close to the television, you know. And they weren't flat rays, the old cathode ray, and she was doing this little dance. she looked at you know Nemo and Dory or Minnie and Mickey or Larry the Cucumber and Bob the Tomato. These fictional characters were as real to her as any real person, and uh, they, they meant so much to her, and her, she was just bubbling over whenever she saw her friends that way, um, or read about we read a book to her, something like that. At 15, she's no different. (laughs) Um, My daughter is a great enthusiast of the things she loves. One of my great joys is her father is hearing her squealing with delight in her bedroom when she's reading a book or watching a show. And uh, I'll say this to you. If you ask her a question about a book series or a television series that she loves, strap yourselves in. (laughs) Take a seat because she is... You're investing some time in the answer because she loves what she loves and she wants you to love it too. (laughs) That kind of enthusiasm is what today is all about. My daughter loves these stories, these, these wonderful fictional stories, and she's got good taste, so I'm glad to see her investing her, her time in these things because I see the way these stories impact her, the way that they've grown her in compassion, and the, more as importantly as compassion, in the courage and character to use it wisely. I see her growing in that way, and, and, and I love it. And that's from a fictional story. The story we gather today to hear and to be transformed by and to have our compassion and our courage and our character grown is a real story, rooted in real history, as real as Washington crossing the Delaware or me being born in Helene Fold Hospital in Princeton, New Jersey on October 3rd, 1969. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the anchor that makes sure our faith and our proclamation. It's God stepping into history to secure his revelation to us that we might know our Lord is victorious over death and because he's victorious over death, know that he's victorious over sin and the devil. A colleague of mine was talking to one of his parishioners recently and the parishioner said and said, You know, Pastor, we talk about the victory of Jesus, but when I look at the world, it doesn't look much like he's victorious. There's, there's deceit, there's conflict, there's violence. I don't know what to do with it. In fact, it seems more like, like, like his adversary in charge and not... Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Well, my friend had to explain to him. He said, yes, the world is full of messes. But this is what the demons are doing on their way out. They have been finally defeated. The turning point has happened. And now, as they are running away, going to their their final resting place, They're burning and looting as they go, much like the Iraqis did when they left Kuwait back during the Gulf War. In fact, my friend said to his parishioner, he said, you know, the compassion you have for people you don't even know is one of the evidences of our Lord's victory. Because the world before the coming of Christ was radically different than it is today. The compassion that we consider a normal part of life, things like providing food for the hungry in a more systematic way than simply giving to a beggar on the street. Providing refugee camps for those displaced by war or by famine. The millions of dollars of aid that are sent to countries around the world every year, and the millions more spent by sending our military as a humanitarian mission. The fact that we care what happens to people who are not part of our family, part of our race, or part of our country is evidence of the victory of Jesus Christ. Because before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the Christian faith that it gave birth to, the remembrance of all his teachings, the world was a very different place. Jesus was not the only one crucified by the Romans. The the torture we read about in the Gospels, or that we see portrayed for us so vividly by movies like The Passion of the Christ, happened to thousands of people to keep the peace of Rome. And Genghis Khan was no better. (laughs) And millions more were daily ground down into dust that the aspirations of empire might be fulfilled. The world was a very different place before the coming of Jesus. But as philosopher Charles Taylor has said, we do live in a secular age. It's an age when it's not only easy to ignore God, in contrast to most human beings who've not been able to really ignore the spiritual except at great energy and effort. In our world, it's easy to ignore those spiritual realities. We're actively encouraged to do so. But in doing so, we also tend to forget the contributions that spirituality, religion in general has made and Christianity in particular specifically has made to the world in which we live. But in this time of chaos when people are so anxious when the world because of the internet has suddenly gotten really, really small and people aren't sure which end is up philosophers and historians are starting to remember. People like Historian Kyle Harper, who's a historian of the Roman Empire, or Samuel Moyne, an unbeliever. but they have recognized in their work that modern concepts of human rights and the ideas of freedom we cherish, and particularly our sense that their human beings have an inherent dignity which cannot be taken away from them. Those ideas don't come from philosophy. They come from the teachings of the Old and New Testament as interpreted by Jesus. Historian Tom Holland from Great Britain, also an atheist, has been eloquent on this point in his book, Dominion. And he, he's had those many speeches on YouTube you can track by him. In a recent tweet, he said this. He said, Human rights aren't objectively true. They derive from profoundly Christian theological presumptions. They are quite as culturally contingent as a belief in Christ's resurrection. Atheist philosopher John Gray has written about how modern politics revolves all around the idea of human rights, but this is merely a chapter in the history of religion, specifically the religion of Jesus Christ. And French philosopher Luc Ferry, another um, atheist, in the kind of grand sweeping statement that only French philosophers seem to be able to make, said this, he said, It is to the idea of humans being made in the image of God that the West owes its entire democratic inheritance. Even Friedrich Nietzsche, the great-grandfather of what's being taught in most of our liberal arts departments today. Son of a Lutheran pastor who contributed to our dialogue, our, the phrase, God is dead, long before Time Magazine ever came up with it. Had this to say in his book, A Genealogy of Morals, he attributes universal human rights specifically to a Christian view of the world and he thinks that's a bad thing. He thinks the strong should oppress the weak and use them for their own purposes. And all these philosophers, whether they think the idea of human rights is a good thing or a bad thing, in tracing it to the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, which we only remember because of his resurrection, they are absolutely correct. I'm not saying you have to be a Christian believe in these ideas, I'm saying those ideas came from Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. And as soon, as soon as Christians moved from being persecuted minority to being able to be legalized and then take public positions of influence and power, they immediately started to transform their world more and more into the way they had been transformed by Jesus Christ. People like Gregory of Nyssa, one of the three great architects of the Nicene Creed, we're going to say together in a few minutes, do you know he's the first person in recorded history to publicly take the position that slavery is wrong? Not just bad treatment of slaves, but all of slavery. Slavery was such a universal institution throughout human history, anthropologists have estimated that up to 80% of the human beings who have ever lived have been slaves. It was so ubiquitous. so Just everywhere you look, no one thought to question it till Gregory. In a sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes, he just rages against what he calls the sheer arrogance of slave ownership. Why? It's an offense against nature and nature's God, as our founding fathers would have said. Because humans are made to be as free as the God in whose image they are made. When Gregory wrote a biography of his older sister, Machina, um, who basically raised him and his brothers, he elevated, he elevated the status of women in the Roman Empire by attributing to her virtue. That may not seem too weird to us in the modern world, but the word virtue comes from the Latin word vir, which means man. Literally, a virtuous woman was an unthinkable thought to a Latin speaker. Until Gregory of Nyssa spoke about the godly virtues of his sister, and how she had taught them all how to follow Jesus. And in doing so, he elevated the dig- equal dignity of men and women together in his world. Because in the Roman world, largely thanks to Aristotle, ladies, you were not considered equally capable with men. Not just in terms of physical strength. We get upper body strength, you get seven more years of life. But in, in, in virtue... Courage, honesty, charity, chastity were all considered distinctively male abilities. Women didn't possess them. Christians gave birth to feminism, folks. (laughs) Making explicit for his culture, Gregory was teaching what the Gospels and what St. Paul talks about in Galatians. Macrina herself went on to found a community that was made of equal parts freed slaves and former slave owners. And in that community everyone had equal responsibilities and equal rights. And Christians throughout the Roman world like Gregory and Macrina by the thousands and hundreds of thousands began to change the world as they had been changed by the gospel. In a world where Unwanted children were either left out on rocks to, be, to die from the elements or be eaten by wild animals. They made orphanages. They taught women how the expectation in the Roman Empire that they would have abortions whenever there was an unwanted pregnancy actually enslaved them to male desire and even to their own. They fought prostitution and the forced sexual practices that were so common throughout the Roman Empire where the strong preyed upon the weak. Nietzsche would have been right at home there. And they improved the treatment of the poor. And they built the expectations slowly but surely through their culture that a good society cares for its poor. In other words, they transformed Roman culture, Roman law, Roman practices—just as Christ had transformed them. In the state, U.S. the State Department, the uh, Department of State uh, released a commission on unalienable rights. Released a report by them in 2020. Here's just two things from the report: more than half the world's population, more than one out of every two people suffers under regimes where the most basic freedoms are systematically denied, or under regimes too weak or unwilling to protect individual rights, especially in the context of ethnic conflict. And they go on to say, human rights are now misunderstood by many, manipulated by some, rejected by the world's worst violators, and subject to ominous new threats. If the news seems hyped up and people are anxious, there's a reason, folks. Here's what I take away from that report. It's that the treatment of people in places like China and North Korea and sections of the Middle East is not odd or out of the ordinary. It's what human beings do to each other absent the teachings of Jesus Christ. And without grounding our sense of human rights in something deeper than just our agreement that we like that, We have to ground it in something deeper and more timeless like the scriptures and their teachings. The word human rights, if we don't do that, just becomes one more lever by which pundits and politicians and activists and mega-corporations can manipulate us. And here's something I believe too. As our culture forgets or worse, villainizes the teachings of Jesus our worldview as Christians, we can expect it to look more and more like the rest of the world does and has throughout history. Because we live in a secular age. The evidence of this is this, and you know this. Any theological talk, any talk about God is regarded as subjective. Not talk about real things. We're taught on our college campuses that everything is in essence meaningless. Meaning we don't go out into the world to discover the truth. We go out to create it. There's no meaning out there. We have to create it as we encounter the world. That's how I can end up with my truth and you can end up with your truth. And all of a sudden we're all Pontius Pilate going, what is truth? And we as people of faith, we swim in this water so we can easily fall into what one of our members calls practical atheism. I love that. Practical atheism. We believe in Christ, but we're lacking the knowledge of what that means for our lives. In a recent Barna survey, while more than 60% of Americans still think of themselves as Christian, fewer than 2% of them, their worldview aligned with the scriptures that reveal Jesus on major issues. Yes, our world is a mess. Our world is full of conflict and pain and sin and difficulty, but that's because we are full of conflict and pain and sin and difficulty. In all the little choices of our lives that aren't shaped by our fealty to Jesus Christ, we let the demonic get a hook into us. I've got to show you this. Um, I I love this little t-shirt up here. If you could just angrily shout all of your political opinions at me, that would be great. (laughs) What's more interesting is that center picture with someone tucking money into their, their suit pocket. I lifted that from an article on the internet about how you are more likely to be dishonest the better educated you are. The more you've gone to a college or you've been taught that all morals are relative, hey, look at that. I'll do whatever benefits me. Surprise! Inside of us are things like envy and despair, anger, lust, sloth, impulses or emotions that have not been tamed by the hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems like the devil has his hooks in the world, it's because the devil has his hooks in us. But this is exactly what Jesus came to break. It's what his victory today came to shatter. When we declare that Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, yes, we, we mean what happened in 33 AD first and foremost, but we mean also what's happening in us. We are made new creations by our faith in Christ. We, slowly but surely, have those things which bring us death cut away by the loving hand of the Master. His victory is meant for our good. In 1 Corinthians today, we hear that He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's code language in the Bible for for death. But in all the little sins of our lives, we're opting for death rather than life. God's adversary rather than his Christ. And in so doing, we fall back asleep, closer to the sleep of death. The things that afflict us, the sins in our lives, are exactly what Christ came to conquer, to set us free from, even as he forgives us for them. So that the anger we feel when we're not getting what we think we deserve or what we want can become gratitude for all that we have that we don't even deserve. And that can lead to worship of the giver of all good things. That the the horrible cankerous green of envy can become the lush green of growth, spiritual growth. That the despair we can sometimes feel when we consider the state of the world or our own state state can become prayer. Whereby God changes us and equips us to go forth and be salt and light in this world. Lust, which is really hunger, the lust we have for, for power or for fame or for acquisitions or more accomplishments... Or yes, for other people, whether we want them for followers on some social media site or for the bedroom, that can become where we look at other people as an opportunity to serve. Knowing that serving serves the servant most. That the spiritual sloth we feel when we just consider the enormity of it all can be shaken off when we begin to share with one another our burdens and our blessings. Everything the Church of Jesus Christ does is meant to help us come awake. To shake off the sin that clings so closely. To be transformed by the good news we receive this day. Could you go forward, Alyssa? Thank you. When we do that, we'll find that we are walking with Christ. And that He died not just to give us life in some far-flung heaven, but real life beginning right now. Life that has the potential to change us and change the world. One of our adult catechumens, someone preparing for holy baptism right now, We were meeting the other night and um, she said, I'm paraphrasing and she'll tell me if I got it wrong after the service, Um, but she said to me, you know, I look at the world and I see what a mess it is and I came to the conclusion that we've forgotten God and I came to the conclusion that if we want to remember God, it's got to begin with me and that's why I'm here. She couldn't know she was paraphrasing one of my favorite authors, Gilbert K. Chesterton. Uh, the London Times, in his, he was a very influential journalist, and in the London Times in his day, uh, put out an essay contest that said, What is wrong with the world? They asked the, the biggest thinkers in England to contribute to the, the newspaper so they could run their columns. And um, he gave the shortest and the most insightful essay of them all What's wrong with the world? I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Even as an adult convert, even as someone who wrote wonderful books about the power of Christ and his reality, he knew that he was yet to be converted more deeply. He had growth yet to go, and that the Spirit had to work on him some more before he was ready. The good news we celebrate this day is that Christ yes he has conquered our sin he has conquered death for our sake and now he has come to us that we might be transformed more and more into his likeness and as we are transformed we will be a blessing first to those immediately around us and we have the potential as those early Christians did in the Roman Empire, even to change the world. And that's why we're so ecstatic. That's why we get so energetic and, like my daughter, do our little dances and sing our songs as loud as we can, because this is good news beyond reckoning. That's why we cry out with one voice Christ is risen. He is he is risen Christ is risen. He is risen Christ is risen.